TED Audio Collective. Hey, it's Elise Hugh. You're listening to TED Talks Daily. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has already led to previously unthinkable changes in geopolitics, seemingly overnight. On today's show, geopolitical analyst Ian Bremmer assesses the greatest risks ahead, discusses what this conflict means globally, and helps us understand the lasting changes that could come about. His insights are from a TED membership conversation with TED's global curator, Bruno Giassani, with questions also coming in from the digital audience. Support comes from Zuckerman Spader. Through nearly five decades of taking on high-stakes legal matters, Zuckerman Spader is recognized nationally as a premier litigation and investigations firm. Their lawyers routinely represent individuals, organizations, and law firms in business disputes, government, and internal investigations, and at trial, when the lawyer you choose matters most. Online at Zuckerman.com. Support for TED Talks Daily comes from Capital One Bank. With no fees or minimums, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than deciding to listen to another episode of your favorite podcast. And with no overdraft fees, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank. Capital One N.A. Member FDIC. TED Talks Daily is brought to you by Progressive, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Quote now at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates, national average 12-month savings with $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. It's difficult to think clearly of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Because wars, while they unfold, they're kind of shrouded in a sort of fog. Information is abundant. Uh, The millions of refugees, the the shocking suffering and the destruction, the politics, but sense is lacking. And that's going to be the focus of this membership conversation as we enter the third week of the war. We won't talk about the events of the day, but try to project a longer arc, a broader context. Our guest is geopolitical analyst Ian Bremer. He's the founder of president of Eurasia Group. And we asked him to lay the scene by talking first about the geopolitical shifts that have already been brought by the war in Ukraine. And after, we're going to have a conversation, including questions from TED members who are participating in this call. Ian, welcome. Thank you very much. Uh, I'll start by saying that uh, in my lifetime, the most important geopolitical artifact is the fall of the Berlin Wall. I mean, you you see it uh, if you go into the new NATO headquarters in Brussels, just built a few years ago, uh, and anyone that has a piece, something they're very proud of. They know it affected their entire life. I think that in 30 years' time, and I fear that in 30 years' time, if we look back, a second most important geopolitical artifact uh, will be a piece of the rubble of the Maidan in Kiev. Um, I believe that the war that we are seeing right now is no more and no less than the end of the peace dividend that we all thought we had uh, when the wall came down in 1989. The idea that the world could focus more on globalization and goods and services and people and ideas going faster and faster across borders 
leading to unprecedented growth um, in human development and a global middle class. Uh, I think that this is a tipping point. won't end globalization, uh, but it does end the peace dividend. It does mean that the Europeans overnight uh, will and must prioritize spending on defense, policy on national security, uh, coordination on NATO. Um, And uh, the speech that was given by Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor, two weeks ago, in my view, the most significant speech given by a European leader in the post-Cold War environment, precisely because it's now the post-post-Cold War environment, sending weapons to the Ukrainians, committing to over 2% of GDP spend on defense, uh, investing in a new fund uh, for defense infrastructure, but also recognizing that the way that the Germans and the Europeans as a whole looked at the world and looked at themselves uh, was unfortunately for all of us outdated. Um, A few other points I'd like to raise just to kick off this conversation. One, Uh, One of the reasons I'm pretty negative about this, and I'm not usually very negative, I'm usually an existential optimist, I'm someone that's just happy there's water in the glass, but when I look at this conflict, I'm much more concerned, and that is because I do not see a scenario, a plausible scenario, in the foreseeable future where Putin emerges from this war in anything less than a radically weakened position compared to where he was before he announced the invasion. And I believe that both in terms of his domestic political orientation, how stable he is in his own country, also, of course, Russia's economic position, and finally, Russia's position in terms of global security and European security, ostensibly the very reason that Putin began the war to begin with. Second big point is that the decoupling that we are seeing from Europe and the United States with Russia is, in my view, permanent. Uh, And that would be true even if there were a negotiated settlement and all the Russian troops were to pull out of Ukraine and we had peace. I still think that a lot of those companies would not come back uh, with Putin in power. I'm convinced that the decisions by the Europeans uh, to ramp up their national security capabilities will be permanent, permanent deployments coming in the Baltic state, for example, forward deployments in in Poland, in Bulgaria, in Romania, and also an unwind of Europe's massive energy dependence, coal, oil, and most importantly, gas, on Russia. That does not make Russia a global pariah, because you can't be a global pariah if the soon-to-be most important economy in the world, China, is actually your bestie on the global stage. And that, indeed, continues to be true despite China's efforts to portray themselves towards Europe, at least, as more neutral. We are going to see the Russians as a supplicant economically in terms of energy flows, financially in terms of transactions, and technologically, perhaps most important, aligned with China. That has big geopolitical implications long term. Also, a lot of other developing economies like the Indians, uh, like the Gulf states, uh, like Brazil, are also not going to work with Russia as a pariah. They'll continue to engage. Are there any silver linings? And I think there are a few. Of course, there is a much greater uh, renewed purpose and mission of NATO. I mean, this is an organization that just a couple of years 
ago, France President Emmanuel Macron referred to as brain debt. Um, it, was, it was increasingly drifting in terms of its importance. The Americans were focusing much more on Asia, the pivot. Uh, not today. Uh, today, NATO is purposeful, it's aligned, it's consolidated, it's going to get more resources, not less. That's also true of the European Union as a whole, even when we talk about countries like Hungary and Poland that have been much less aligned in terms of rule of law, in terms of an independent judiciary, much more aligned in terms of the importance of common values of Europe compared to that of what we're seeing in Moscow. I mentioned the German security and policy shift. The UK EU relationship is much smoother and more functional than at any point since Brexit process actually started. And even the United States. I mean, if you watch the State of the Union for a brief moment in time, five or ten minutes, when all of the Democrats and Republicans were standing and applauding together, you could be forgiven for believing that the United States had a functional representative democracy. Now, I'm not sure how long this is going to last, but at least as of now, leaders of the Democratic and Republican Party see Putin as much more of a threat and enemy than they do their opponents across the aisle in domestic politics. And two weeks ago, that was not true. That's significant. Final silver lining, and I wish it was more of one, but the Chinese, as much as they are strategically aligned with Russia and with the person of President Putin, they do not want a second Cold War, and they would rather a negotiated settlement. They're not willing to push very hard for it, but they certainly do not see a radical decoupling of the Russian and potentially the Chinese economy from the rest of the world, from Europe, from the U.S., from the advanced industrial democracies, as in any way in their interest. And ultimately, that does create at least some buffer, some guardrail on how much this is likely to escalate as a conflict going forward. I want to make a step back and unpack some of some of that. Maybe starting with a question that relates to your last point and the story in the mind of many. Uh, and it is, is there still some real space for negotiation? Is there still a potential relationship between Russia and Ukraine? The foreign ministers of Russia and Ukraine just met recently in Turkey. Um, it was as much of a non-event as the three preceding negotiations of more junior representatives of their teams on the Belarus border. The one thing that has been accomplished to a small degree has been humanitarian corridors extending out of a number of Ukrainian cities uh, that are being uh, pounded by Russian military. That's because the Ukrainians are interested in protecting their civilians and the Russians are interested in taking a lot of territory without necessarily having to kill um, so many Ukrainians. That could cause problems for them internationally as well as domestically inside Russia. Um, but that is nowhere close to a negotiated settlement. No, I mean, everyone I know that's involved in the negotiations right now responds that the President Putin himself is hell-bent on taking Kiev and on removing Zelensky from power. And by the way, they're getting quite close to being able to accomplish that militarily on the ground. Uh, I think within the next couple of weeks, certainly it looks very likely. Uh, a couple of points here. One, there is no reason to put any stock in anything that the Russians are saying publicly in terms of their diplomacy. They lied to the face of every world leader about the invasion that they said they were not going to do into Ukraine. And then just today, 
Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov publicly said, well, the Russians didn't attack Ukraine. I mean, this is Orwellian stuff, right? So first of all, uh, do not report on Russian public statements as if they bear any semblance to reality on the ground. Uh, Secondarily, uh, this looks like a huge loss for Putin right now. He understands it, and I think he would have a hard time, even, even with his control of information, spinning this to his public um, without removing Zelensky, without the denazification, as he calls it, which is an obscenity in an environment where the Ukrainian president is actually Jewish, the disarmament um, of Ukraine, and, of course, the ability of the Russians to change how they feel about Ukraine as a threat uh, to the Russian homeland. What level of support can we give Ukraine militarily, intel, economic, before Putin considers uh, taking a strike uh, on a NATO country? Well, um, it's interesting the way you framed that, Bruno, because, I mean, I think that Putin is already considering strikes on NATO countries. I mean, there were massive attacks, cyber attacks and disinformation attacks uh, by Russia against NATO countries with reckless abandon over the course of the past years. And in fact, when President Biden met with Putin in Geneva back in June, it seems like years and years ago at this point, um, Biden set the agenda. Ukraine was largely not discussed, but what was discussed was cyber attacks on critical infrastructure, because you may remember, Bruno, that meeting came right after the cyber attacks against the colonial pipeline. And the Russians after that indeed pulled back on supporting those attacks by their criminal cyber syndicates. I expect those attacks to restart in very short order um, against NATO countries. Uh, I also believe that the fact that the West is sending weapons to Ukraine and is providing real-time intelligence reports on the disposition of Russian troops on the ground in Ukraine to better allow the Ukrainians to defend themselves and blow the Russians up, that is considered by the Russians to be an act of war. And they will retaliate. Um, And how they retaliate is the question. I don't think they're going to send troops into Poland. But, you know, when when the Americans under Reagan uh, were providing that kind of support to the Mujahideen to help them defeat the Soviets in Afghanistan, the Soviets saw that as an act of war. And they engaged in acts of terrorism against the Mujahideen in Pakistan. I absolutely think that that is on the table um, in terms of uh, frontline NATO countries, especially like Poland, like the Baltic states, like Bulgaria, Romania. Would that be considered um, an Article 5 attack? Would that, would that force NATO countries to strike the Russians back? I'm not sure it would, not directly, not militarily. Um, so, I mean, I do think that the fact that the NATO countries see there is some sort of a big red line between sending troops in, for example, and um, sending doing a no-fly no zone because that could cause World War III, but everything short of that is just a proxy war. The Russians don't see it that way. And that gives the Russians some advantage tactically in terms of their willingness to escalate. You're describing a spiral of escalation here that will touch the globe, not only Ukraine, not only the eastern flank of, uh, of uh, Europe, which means that not only this war has ripple effects everywhere, but there's also starting a sort of realignment of the global geopolitical situation and, and context. To me, it has been very striking how Europe and the, and, and, and the US has kind of 
uh, moved very fast in a crazy way, uh, and, and so. And uh, it has chosen, after years of prioritizing the economics in their international and global dealings, it's chosen to put politics over markets. It has adopted sanctions that will hurt Russia, but will also hurt Western businesses. Uh, is the discussion about decoupling that you were before. So uh, an active kind of fencing out of the Russian economy. Talk to us about how do you see this decoupling playing out? Yeah, I, I mean, I do think that for the Europeans, this is a permanent move. I mean, I've spoken to top leaders in the German government who tell me that Nord Stream was a strategic mistake, and they understand it, who say that, you know, Schultz making this speech from the Social Democratic Party on the center left is the equivalent of Nixon going to China. No one else could have made that move. Um, but, but having made it, everyone is on board. The popularity in Germany, even given the massive economic consequences, is extraordinary and is across the board. Um, and what they need to do now is ensure that the diversification of fossil fuels in the near term away from Russia towards Qatar and Azerbaijan and even, uh, you know, sort of the, the United States for LNG um, can be done as fast as humanly possible. And that further, even though it's going to cost a lot, some of it will be uneconomic, the move towards renewables actually picks up and is faster. The Italians... Um, Mario Draghi, I think his shift in strategic orientation that they will do, this is his whatever it takes moment. He had that in response to the 2008 financial crisis as the head of the European Central Bank, and that made him Super Mario. This is making him Super Mario as the Italian prime minister. This is the whatever it takes moment for the Italians who never make public statements um, that undermine their economic, their commercial interests uh, like this in such a strategic way. The French, of course, have less to be concerned about um, in the sense that most of their energy comes from nuclear power and is domestic, so they are not um, as, as affected directly by a cutoff from Russia. I believe that even after Kiev falls and after Zelensky is either killed or forced out, um, that the, uh, the Americans will not want to engage in direct diplomacy. The Germans probably won't. The French will. And by the way, the Chinese will too. And I do believe that there is a potential, and this is a danger for the cohesiveness of the West, that the Chinese and Macron end up being the post-Kiev Normandy format of diplomacy, that's something that the Americans and the Germans right now are starting to worry about quite a bit. Now, that's the European shift. I think it's permanent. I believe the UK is in that uh, camp as well. I'm not so sure the United States is going to be as committed for as long a term. It doesn't affect the Americans as much economically. It doesn't affect the Americans as much in terms of a direct security issue. None of those refugees are coming to the United States. But also, American inequality... American political polarization and dysfunction is so much greater than what you experience on the continent in Europe. So the potential that in six months' time or in two years' time, as we're thinking about the 2024 election, that the Americans have largely forgotten about this Russia issue, instead are focusing once again on domestic political opponents as principal adversaries, 
which deeply undermines NATO much more than anything that would come from the Europeans, I think that is a real open question going forward that is perhaps as significant as the question of where the Chinese go. Let me pick up on the point you made about energy, because Putin's calculus can be really changed if uh, Russian oil and gas stops flowing to Europe, if it becomes part of the sanctions, right? Uh, and, and, and this war indeed can kind of be read as a war about energy. Selling energy funds it for Russia. Uh, being dependent on Russian energy uh, makes the European response more constrained. Rising energy uh, insecurity, rising energy cost may or probably will destabilize European politics and economy in the coming, in the coming months. Uh, how, how do you look at this from the perspective of, of energy? And is, it any, is there any likelihood that Russian oil and gas is going to stop flowing, either because Putin cuts it or the Europeans sanction it? Yeah, or, or because um, it's blown up um, in what some of the transit up? in Ukraine. I mean, keep in mind, so much of the gas transit is going through large pipeline networks, which have some redundancy across all of Ukraine. But there's a big war that's going on right there and lots of people that could be have, could have incentive to create problems. Um, I, the Americans, of course, the Canadians have said that they're cutting off um, oil import from Russia, but those are nominal numbers, so they don't matter very much to the markets. The Europeans, as I said, want to decouple themselves as quickly as possible, but they believe that doing that this year would be economic suicide. So there isn't, despite everything we see from Russia, and they're using thermobaric weapons now against the Ukrainian people. The Americans are warning that they could use chemical, biological weapons against Ukraine. I mean, you know, you even have some people saying, what if they use a tactical nuclear weapon? I mean, I, I, God willing, none of these things come to pass. But it is very hard to see um, a military scenario in Ukraine that leads the Europeans to completely cut off their inbound gas from Russia this year. It's very hard to see. In other, and, and also, I would say it's very hard to see any level of economic sanction that would change the mind of the Russians in terms of their military decision-making on the ground in Ukraine. Now, I think there are a lot of things that the West is doing in terms of providing weapons for the Ukrainians that are having an impact on the ground, a lot more Russians are getting killed. It won't prevent them from taking to Kiev. Again, in my, in my mind, I feel quite confident about that. But it's quite possible, um, perhaps even likely, that the, West, that the West of Ukraine will remain in Ukrainian hands, which means that you know, after this fighting uh, is, is over, that a rump Ukrainian state in exile exists in the West, run by Zelensky or someone that's aligned with him, and that they continue to get enormous economic and military support from all of the NATO countries. So, I mean, I, even though I don't think that the energy situation will become so parlous that it would affect Putin's decision-making, I do think that the West's response does matter on the ground. The war has kind of having radiating economic shockwaves uh, uh, around the, the world now, uh, ripple effects on food markets, for example, and food security. We talk a lot about energy security. What about food security? What happens when commodity prices spike up and we have severe supply chain challenges with energy and food? And those things are obviously very related. What happens is that a lot of people die. What happens is we see a lot more starvation, the number of people who are food stressed in the world. 
um, is going to go way up in sub-Saharan Africa, in Yemen, in Afghanistan, in Bangladesh. It's going to go way up. Um, and, you know, this is, it's, it's horrible to think about, but the, the massive impact of this Russia crisis is going to be much more global inequality. And this is, of course, a direct consequence of the end of the peace dividend more structurally that over the last 30 years of globalization, what did you have? A lot of people were left behind, but the biggest thing you had was the explosion of a single global middle class. On the back of the pandemic and now this Russia-Ukraine war and the decoupling of the Russian economy from the West, which doesn't matter so much in terms of the size of the Russian economy, but it matters immensely in terms of commodities globally and supply chain, those two things are going to seriously unwind the growth of this global middle class. And they're going to stress developing countries to a much greater degree. They will lead to financial crises in countries like Turkey, for example, that will no longer be able to service their debt. You'll see more Lebanons out there. You'll see some in Latin America. Um, You'll see some in sub-Saharan Africa. Those are the knock-on effects. And so, so many people that have been saying over the last few weeks, why are we paying so much attention to Ukraine? It's because they're white people because they're European. We wouldn't pay that much attention if they were Afghanis or if they were Yemenis. Uh, We wouldn't. Actually, I mean, first of all, you've got millions and millions of Ukrainian refugees, and we're not paying as much attention to them as we did to the Syrian refugees, precisely because of race, precisely because the Europeans are more willing to integrate millions and millions of fellow Europeans into Europe. But we are paying much more attention to the Ukraine crisis, and we should, because the impact on the poorest people around the world is vastly greater from this conflict than anything that we've seen in any of those smaller economies with less impact, despite all of the human depredation that's happened over the past 30 years. Yeah, and I want to talk for a second about climate, because another crisis that has kind of disappeared from the headlines is, uh, is the climate crisis, right? Ten days ago, the IPCC released a report that the Secretary General of the UN described as an atlas of human suffering, if I remember correctly. And it has been basically ignored. Over the last several years, much of the world that started to embark with more or less enthusiasm on a process of transitioning away from oil and gas and into kind of a clean energy future. And now the war comes in and we look at what you just described, the unraveling of global supply chains, the dependency on energy and so on. There are kind of two school of thoughts here. One says this war is going to accelerate the adoption of clean energy because we need to diminish dependence from Russia uh, and his fossil fuels. Other school of thought says uh, it's going to derail the transition to clean energy because suddenly the priority is no longer decarbonization. Suddenly the priority is energy security, energy supply. The Europeans are largely in the first camp and they will move towards faster decoupling and investment accordingly. The Americans are largely in the second camp, and they will move towards, let's focus more on fossil fuels and partisan divide on this issue accordingly. Um, The Chinese, who are the largest carbon emitter in the world by a long margin, though not per capita and not historically, but still in terms of every year totals, um, they will continue on the same path they've been on, which is um, a net zero target, but without yet a very strong plan on how to get there and not feeling a lot of pressure to provide that plan because they think the Americans are completely incoherent and uh, incapable of of effectuating a strategic long-term plan on climate themselves. Um, So, I mean, what we have is a lot of progress, 
uh, on climate, and of course, uh, technology around renewable energies and around electric batteries and supply chain continue to get cheaper and cheaper as more money is being invested in it. And that does make me long-term more optimistic that by 2045, a majority of the world's energy will probably be coming from renewables. And five years ago, I wouldn't have said that. But still, I mean, when the news today is that the Americans are sending a high-level delegation to Caracas um, to figure out if we can reopen relations with Venezuela to get them to produce more oil again, uh, with the Iranians, let's do any deal possible to get back into the JCPOA, the nuclear deal, so that we can get that oil on the market, calling the Saudis, calling the Emiratis, and they're not willing to take Biden's phone call on this issue while they're talking to Putin. Those are, those are warning signals that in the near term, we've got some big challenges, and a lot of those challenges are going to be filled with fossil fuels and fossil fuel development. And so I do think that the, the fact that, that both of the answers to your question are true in different places on net-net is more negative for how quickly we can transition. Let's talk a moment about China. Uh, Birgit, I think, who's uh, listening in, uh, asks, what do you believe Xi Jinping is learning from the world's response to the crisis, to the Ukrainian war? Um, well, certainly learning that this was a red line for the West. Uh, and I, I think that this would have surprised, it obviously surprised Putin. I think it would have surprised Xi Jinping as well. Xi Jinping saw Afghanistan um, he saw that Merkel was out. He saw that Macron is focused on strategic autonomy. He sees Biden as much more focused on China and Asia. I think that this is a surprise um, to Xi Jinping. But, but Xi Jinping also sees that a lot of the world is not with NATO on this issue. 141 countries, if I remember correctly, uh, voted to censor uh, the Russians for their invasion of Ukraine at the United Nations General Assembly. But very large numbers of that 141 are not on board with all of these sanctions against Russia. They're happy with the diplomatic censure, but they need to continue to work with the Russians. The Chinese see that too. The Chinese see just how much more fragmented the global order is. I, I thought the most significant thing that we've seen from the Chinese so far, two, two issues, the first is, of course, when Putin went to Beijing and Xi Jinping made the public announcement that uh, this is our best friend on the global stage. And we will work much more strategically with them economically, diplomatically, and militarily going forward. And Xi Jinping knew very well where Ukraine was heading at that point and also knew that the likelihood of an invasion was coming. Um, didn't stop him from making that announcement in the slightest. Um, and, and then... After the invasion, and it's going badly, I mean, if you watch Russian, Chinese social media, if you, the, the fact is that the censorship is all about Ukraine. I mean, the Chinese media space is pursuing a relentlessly pro-Putin policy. They have media embedded with Russian troops on the ground in Ukraine. Now, publicly, the Chinese government wants to be seen as we're neutral, we like the Russians, we like the Ukrainians, we still want to work with everybody. But the fact is that China feels no problem being publicly completely aligned with Putin, despite the fact that they are invading a democratic government 
with 44 million people in the middle of Europe. That's a pretty astonishing statement from the Chinese. Um, and, and there's no question that they have learned that they're in a vastly better economic position than they used to be, and that gives them influence. They are a government who projects its power primarily through economic and technological means, as opposed to Russia that projects it primarily through military means. And the Chinese believe that um, there is a level of decoupling that is already going on as the Americans focus on more industrial policy, as they focus on America first for American workers. Uh, a U.S. foreign policy for the American middle class, as Biden put it, is one that really pushes a lot of capital to leave a country like China, which had served as the factory for the world, but at the expense of a lot of labor coming out of advanced industrial economies. And now, yes, there are definitely some dangers that come from the Chinese being perceived as too close to Russia, and they won't want that, and they'll want to make sure that they're engaging diplomatically with the Europeans to try to minimize that damage. But I thought it was very interesting, and I'm not sure this is public yet, that the uh, Chinese ambassador to Russia recently, in the last few days, organized a meeting of a lot of the top investors, Chinese investors in Russia, saying this is a unique opportunity the West is leaving, we should be going in and doing more because they're going to be completely reliant on us going forward. That is not a message that the Chinese ambassador delivers unless he is told directly to from Beijing. Yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to jump from topic to topic because there are several questions in the, in the chat. Nancy is asking about uh, whether Putin can be removed from, from power. There's been a lot of discussion lately about regime change in Russia, either endogenous, like a palace coup, or provoked by, by sanctions and other policies. And so uh, she asks, how likely is that Putin will face a challenge from inside Russia, whether a popular uprising, a coup or other? It's very, very unlikely until it happens. <laughs> you know, I mean, in the sense that there is absolutely no purpose in trying to say, oh, I mean, you know, there, there are rumors that uh, Defense Minister Shoigu is unhappy and, you know, he might be making a move. And I've, I've seen these from relatively credible analysts. I'm like, no, no, if there are such rumors, then we know that it's not happening because that's the end of Shoigu and his family. Um, but it's very clear that there is more pressure on Putin now than at any point since he's been president, a domestic pressure on Putin. About 10,000 Russians have been arrested so far, detained. Most of them have been released uh, for... Uh, non-violent anti-war protests. The Russians have shut down all the Western media. They've shut down all the Russian opposition and independent media. So Putin has control of the space, though if you look at Russian conversations on Telegram, you'll still see a bunch of people that are seriously, seriously anti-war. Um, but, you know, once the economy starts truly imploding and you can't find goods on shelves in, in Russia in major cities, and this is coming, you know, very soon, this is a matter of days, in many of these cities, those demonstrations will likely become greater. Some of them can become violent. You know, that, that'll increase the pressure. Then, then you have the issue of how the Russians are fighting on the ground. I mean, what happens if you get a lot of desertions? We haven't seen that so far. Uh, what happens if you get uh, orders um, to bomb Kiev and a whole bunch of Russian fighter pilots, bomber pilots decide not to and they defect to Poland, to Germany? That would have a big uh, impact on morale. That has not happened so far. I mean, be, do be aware of the fact that the Ukrainians are winning the war on information. And that means that the information that you are getting in the West about the war is much more pro-Ukrainian morale, 
enthusiasm, how well the military is doing, than what's actually happening on the ground. Um, And also be aware of the fact that the Russians completely control the war on information inside Russia. Exactly. They're They're not getting a balanced view. They're getting a completely pro-Putin view. And most of them actually believe it in the same way that most people that voted for Trump in the U.S. believe that the election was stolen and Trump is still president. I mean, it's much worse in Russia in that regard than it is in the United States. And I think that that's underappreciated in the West. So I, I even though I think there's pressure, I really don't think that it's super likely that, that Putin is out anytime imminently. And is asking whether you see any off-ramp for Putin. Um, I think that the most likely off-ramp for Putin is after Kiev is taken and Zelensky is removed one way or the other. At that point, the possibility of the Russians accepting a frozen conflict or a ceasefire that could lead to ongoing negotiations is a lot higher because Putin can sell that as a win back home much more easily, um, but also because further Russian attacks at that point serve much less purpose for the Russians, are much harder to bring about, um, and, and potentially have much more negative consequences. So for me, that would be the near-term potential break where we could at least freeze issues largely where they are. Now, whether that could then eventually lead to a climb down or not, I mean, the Russians have been very happy with frozen conflicts on their borders for years and years and years. I'm thinking about Nagorno-Karabakh between Armenia and Azerbaijan, which basically stayed in place until the Azeris over the course of a decade got enough military capacity that they could forcibly change the situation on the ground, which, by the way, the Ukrainians might also be eventually thinking about because the West will be supplying them with advanced weapons all the way through. Um, I'm thinking South Ossetia in Georgia. I'm also, of course, thinking about the two pieces of Ukraine they took back in 2014. So be aware of the fact that, uh, the, that a negotiation that creates a ceasefire does not mean you're anywhere close to a resolution or an end uh, of, of the fighting that we're seeing. Someone else in the chat is asking about the nuclear fear that hangs over the conflict. How should we think of that? Yeah, we don't like it when Putin uses the N-word. And uh, there's no question. I mean, he and his uh, direct reports have rattled nuclear sabers on at least five times that I've seen in the past few weeks. Um, I, I think that in 1962, I wasn't alive. We had the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a real possibility of nuclear confrontation between the world's two superpowers. Uh, at least for the last 30 years, there's been no chance of that. Functionally, no chance of that. I think we're now back in a world where a Cuban Missile Crisis is again a reality. Now, that doesn't mean that I think nuclear war is likely or imminent. I don't. And in fact, there is active deconfliction going on even today. The Americans and Russians with a new hotline, the Secretary General of the UN with the um, Russian Defense Minister uh, uh, engaging in deconfliction measures with UN uh, be, uh, offices being invited to Moscow. So as bad as it is right now, people that have been doing this for a long time are trying to avoid nuclear war. But that's the point, is we're now in a situation where the conflict that we're going to experience needs to be actively managed because of the danger of nuclear confrontation. So it now becomes a risk on the horizon 
that we must be continually aware of, even if only at a low level, as we take and consider further actions, as we consider diplomacy, as we consider escalation. Uh, It is now on the table in a way that, frankly, is so debilitating. I mean, as, as human beings all on this call, one of the most painful things to think about is the fact that we still have these 5,000 nuclear warheads in Russia and 5,000 in the United States. They're still pointed at each other and they still have the potential to destroy the planet. And we haven't, we haven't had any real lessons that we've been able to learn institutionally from 1962. 5,000 being a genetic figure, not the exact figure, but we are kind of in that order of magnitude. Uh, then, of course, there is the question of, of civilian uh, and nuclear. So the, the, the two power plants, nuclear power plants, have been seized by the Russians. Uh, one has been uh, slightly damaged by uh, a bomb. The other has been turned off. Uh, but those are also potential gigantic nuclear problems uh, just waiting to happen. Chemical weapons, biological weapons. I mean, look, we have had two million refugees from Ukraine in two weeks. As this continues, you're looking at five to ten million refugees um, I mean, it is, it is hard just to take a step for a moment, just as a human being. Imagine what it would take for a quarter of your country's population to say, I am not living here anymore. I am leaving everything because of the condition of the country, because of this unjust war that has been imposed upon you by your neighbor. Um, that's what we're looking at. And again, it's, it's important for us to you know, not, not lose the humanity of this crisis and the extraordinary hardship that is being visited upon 44 million Ukrainians that have done nothing wrong, they have committed no sin other than their desire to have an independent country. One other country that has not yet taken a very clear position is India. Well, they're a member of the Quad and their relationship with China is pretty bad and, uh, and it's mutual. Um, but in terms of Russia, there's been a long-standing relationship, trade relationship, defense relationship between India and Russia that the Russians uh, are not going to jettison and they see no reason to jettison it. And as long as you've got a whole bunch of other countries out there that are substantial, that are willing to say, we're going to keep playing ball with the Russians, then the Indians will too. And that's why you got the abstention um, in the United Nations vote. Uh, and that's why uh, you've had a very careful Uh, comments as opposed to overt and strong condemnation coming from the Indian leadership. Phil in the chat is asking, will this cause a fragmentation of the financial system with kind of a Western system and and an Eastern system? So two different SWIFT-like systems, two different credit card systems, crypto, was there all of crypto in all this? I hope not. Um, I mean, I will tell you that before the invasion started, if you talk to most Western CEOs, and I'm talking across the entire sweep of sectors, so it's finance and it's manufacturing and it's services and it's tech, most of them would have told you that they did not in any way plan on reducing their footprint in China. And a lot of them said that China was their most important growth market in the world. Not a surprise, China's going to be the largest economy in the world in 2030. So, you know, a world that you're decoupling is, is not a good world when China is going to be number one economically. I mean, that obviously is going to hurt the West in a big way. So there are strong incentives against that. And there remain very strong and powerful entrenched interests in the United States and Europe that will resist direct decoupling. 
despite the fact that there are these more incremental moves towards friend sourcing and insourcing because, you know, Chinese labor is more expensive. You don't need as much labor um, to, to get um, capital moving uh, in, given, given robotics and big data, deep learning, all of those things. Um, but uh, I do think that the Russia conflict risks um, a level of second-order decoupling because if the Russians end up financially integrated with China in their own not-as-effective Swiss system, and all of their energy ends up going to China and the Chinese build that infrastructure and they get a discount on it, and Russia's technology and their military industrial complex gets serviced by Chinese semiconductors and Chinese componentry, well, I do think that there will be knock-on decoupling that will be longer-term and more strategic from the United States, from the Europeans, and even from Japan and South Korea. So that is a worry, and I think the Chinese are highly aware of that. And over the coming months, they will do everything they can, both with the Europeans in particular, but also I expect at least with some of the Asian economies to try to limit the impact of that. Now, Keep in mind, we haven't talked at all about Asia yet outside of China. The new Japanese Prime Minister Kishida is at least as hawkish in his orientation towards China and Russia as Abe was. He is providing support for the Ukrainians, including some military capacity, unheard of for the Japanese. He's allowing Ukrainian refugees, unheard of for the Japanese. And yesterday, the South Koreans had a very, very tight election. And Yoon uh, is now in charge. He is on the right, and he is the guy that is strongly anti-China, was talking about South Korea having nuclear capabilities, um, wants a new THAAD missile defense system for the South Koreans, and wants to uh, rebuild the relationship with Tokyo. That matters. And that's a, that's a big strategic uh, change in the geopolitical map that will look more problematic on the decoupling front from Beijing's perspective. Three final quick questions that all come from, from the chat, Ian. One is, because you mentioned the rest of Asia outside of China, what about the rest of the world? What about Africa and Latin America? How do they factor into this conversation or don't they? They factor in. Um, I mean, those that have significant commodities do well because the prices are going to be so high. Those that don't are going to be under massive pressure for reasons we already talked about. But they are not going to be forced to pick a side on this one. I just don't see it um, in the same way that if you were Colombia in the last couple of years, you know, you found even though you're working very closely with an American ally, you're still dealing with Huawei and 5G. Uh, th- this is knock on effects of all of this. These are countries that are not going to say they're not going to take on significant economic burden, given how much they're suffering right now geopolitically. Another one is about uh, sanctions. How do we even know when and how at what point we start rolling back? sanctions? Um, I think that as long as um, Ukraine is occupied uh, by the Russian government for the foreseeable future and Putin is there, I can't see these sanctions getting unwound. Now, if, the Ukra- if a rump Ukrainian government that is, diplomatic, that is democratically elected were prepared to sue for peace and retakes most of Ukraine, but they give away Crimea and they give away the Donbass, could you see in that environment, some of these sanctions unwound, sure. 
But I mean, I am I am suggesting that I think that many of these sanctions are functionally permanent. They reflect a new way of doing business. Um, and that when people ask me what's going to happen when this is over, my response is, what do you mean over? What's over is the peace dividend. We're now in a new environment. And one of the figures of this new environment, and I want to close with that, is President Zelensky of uh, Ukraine, who was not taken very seriously when he was elected. He has come out as a, a, a significant figure in this war. What do you make of President Zelensky? How do you read this character? He's very courageous. Um, I'm obviously inspired uh, by his ability to communicate and rally his people um, and take personal risk in Kiev uh, while this invasion is going on. But I'm very conflicted because I think many of the steps that Zelensky took in the run-up to this conflict actually um, made the likelihood of conflict worse. He was unwilling to take um, the advice of the Americans and Europeans seriously in the months leading up to the conflict. He was unwilling um, to mobilize his people to ready them for the potential of conflict. He was certainly unwilling to give an inch in terms of Ukraine's desire to be a member of NATO, even though he knew completely that no one in NATO was prepared to offer a membership action plan, let alone actually bring them in as members. And um, part of that is a lack of experience um, and lack of any business uh, being in that position um, in the run-up to this crisis. So I'm, I'm very deeply conflicted in my personal views on Zelensky, given the way he behaved before the invasion, compared to the extraordinary leadership that he has displayed to all of us over the last two weeks. Ian, thank you for taking the time, for sharing your knowledge and your analysis with us. We deeply appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good to see all of you.